0: Well, this morning we move to 1 Corinthians 5, as we're making our way through the book, the challenging book of 1 Corinthians, a book that tackles subjects in particular that are not found with such clarity in other sections of the Bible, Uh, some unique sins uh, there in Corinth that Paul addresses, and we've taken it up as a challenge uh, to ourselves to... um, to hear the word of God, to be convicted by it, uh, that we might repent of our sins and seek to live holy lives, not only individually, but as a congregation. Well, as we've looked at so far, the Corinthians have been in their arrogance, right? questioning the integrity of Paul, questioning the authority of Paul, questioning whether or not Paul is a true apostle. And Paul has been reckoning with them calling them to, or at least challenging them to see the world in a different way, that they are seeing it backwards. What they think is great is actually less, and what they see as foolish is actually wise, and so forth. Paul has been upsetting their world and their ways of thinking. Now we come to chapter 5, where Paul dives into a particular sin that he has heard about. Now remember, Paul has been away from this church for some time in this very chapter he will acknowledge that he's already written a letter to them so it's here that we learn that what we're reading is actually second Corinthians and what we read in second Corinthians is actually fourth Corinthians but we have letters two and four so Paul acknowledges here that he wrote to them we'll hear that uh, shortly and Mark read the text for you this morning so we should have that uh, in our ears as we jump in this morning what we what the pro let's let's first consider the problem here in Corinth in chapter five. Paul has it reported to him that there is a man in the Corinthian church who is sleeping with his stepmother, that he is having relations with his dad's wife, and Paul is upset by this, and he writes back to them, "What are you doing <laughs> like what's What's going on up there in Corinth? Now, again, in, in the Corinthian culture, maybe this is not a big deal. Oh, who, who doesn't do that? But, but within the church, within the church, this is a problem. But we've acknowledged already that this is the problem with the Corinthians. They're thinking like Corinthians. They're not thinking like Christians. And again, we've been using as our background verse, Romans 12, 2, that Paul, Paul's urging not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And here is a very obvious point, not not some philosophical problem that the Corinthians have. Here is a very practical issue. You have a man who is having relations with his dad's wife, the sexual immorality that is infiltrating the church, and the Corinthians are not dealing with it. So that's the setting that we have to the problem. We have that early on. And, And Paul challenges them. In verse 2, are, you are puffed up. You, you're, I'm hearing about all this greatness of the Corinthian church and how, how, how you guys feel so strong and so wise. He's going to say, right, your glory is actually shameful. You're so confident, you're so puffed up, and yet you have glaring sin, public sin, in your congregation, and you turn a blind eye to it. Paul is able to see even where he is, the problem here. And he says as much. Let's read the beginning. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. So even for Corinthians, this would be be bad. That a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up? And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. That is, I'm, not, I'm not even in your midst. I'm, I'm not even there to see it. You guys, are, you guys are fellowshipping with this character. I'm however many miles away. And yet even from here, I can judge what you can't judge right in front of your eyes. So again, we, we've got two things going on here. One, Paul is being a pastor, a father, right? We looked at that in the past couple of weeks. Paul's being a father to his children. He's being a father to this church. He is pointing out to them the lack of health within their own body. So on one hand, we have a pastoral issue going here. Hey, let me just give you some church advice here. You guys have to deal with this sin. So we're getting, we're getting some pastoral uh, uh, direction here. But also we're getting rebuke here. We're getting rebuked because, Corinthian church, here you are standing on your pedestal as if you're able to judge all things. You're able to determine the, 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 the efficacy of my apostleship. Yet you don't have the eyes to see this grievous sin that is taking place right within your own congregation. I can see it from here. And you can't see it. In some sense, it's a classic... Example on a body level, on a corporate level of what Jesus says in Matthew 7 about having the log in your own eye and you're trying to take a speck out of a brother's eye. Here they are critiquing Paul's ministry and yet they clearly cannot see the, the problem in their own congregation. The big log in their congregation's eye. This is very easy to do. You know it as well as I do. You, you i know you know it because you've been around other people's children and you can see so clearly the problem you can see so clearly the disrespect you don't know the kid at all you barely know the family you walk by them in the mall but from there even from your disassociated place of of uh, of standing you can see there's a respect problem in this family there's a respect problem between child and parent, you can see it, it's so obvious. And yet, the parent, who's there all the time, just can't see it. There's all kinds of little justifications, you know, because you, you, frankly, you've been there probably on the other side as well in life. You know, people, we can spot other people's sins really clearly, but many times we cannot see our own. And this is not only true for us as individuals, it can often be true for a congregation, a group of people as well, a family. And the Corinthians have a big old log in their eye. And they can all, oh, they think they can see Paul's problems. But Paul is chastising them and reprimanding them, saying, even from here, guys, I can judge this situation. And yet you're right there and you can't judge it. So the Corinthian church has a problem. And again, Paul's doing two things. He's rebuking them and their pride and their, their, the, the audacity that they have, the, the, this pomposity that they have. He's rebuking not on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's also giving them fatherly, pastoral advice. He loves these people. Do not forget that when he opened this, he refers to them as the church of God, as those who are sanctified. Right? It's, it's done. You, you are holy. You are saints of the Most High. He, he loves them and he values them. He's not, he's not belittling them, but he is rebuking them. But he wants to see them be a healthy church. Just like we want affirmation to be a healthy church. And so we've got to step in. Again, it's very obvious for us to see the Corinthians problem. So we can, in watching this whole thing, we could do the exact same thing. We could say, oh, <laughs> look at those silly Corinthians. They couldn't see this obvious sin. How ridiculous is that? See, so again, we can see the, the disrespectful kid in the mall. We can clearly say, oh, parenting problem. They need that kid needs a little discipline. But what sins are we hauling around that somebody else just walked by us and they see the obvious thing in us that we just don't see because we're focusing on that guy's sins over there. So we have to be careful even as we read this text that we don't fall into the Corinthian trap and see what is clear. Okay, look, hey, a man's sleeping with his, his dad's wife. We got a problem here. We've, this has to be dealt with. We can't let this go on. Okay, fine, fine. But maybe we need to pull a log from our eye, look at our own church, look at our own selves and see what the Lord wants us to see here. So let us be careful, but let us feel uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians as well. Okay, so there's the setting. We've got this particular sin that Paul is addressing from afar. He can see so clearly, even though they are blinded to it. So what's the problem? Why, why is, we, we, we already said Paul's rebuking them and the fact that they can't see it, but why is this of such importance that Paul would mention it from there? Seems like an obvious problem, a sin, but why is Paul bringing it up? Well, the problem is given to us in several places. Down in verse 5, um, oh, excuse me, um, in verse 7, well, let me just read it, okay. <laughs> starting in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of the Lord, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying, that is your pomposity, is not good. You do not uh, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here gets the heart of the problem. So we're going to talk about what Paul just said there about delivering one over to Satan. We'll get there in a second. But first, let's get to why this is a problem for Paul. So there's the setting. The issue is we've got this sin, this grievous sin going on. What's the problem? Do you not know, he asks them. And to put the question that way, again, is a little bit of rebuke. You should know better. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little bit of yeast, gets in there and takes this lump of dough and infiltrates the whole lump and puffs the whole lump up. It it has an effect on the entire lump of dough. Do you not know that? Now Paul is clearly saying this is true of our sin. It's true for you, Corinthians, as a congregation. If you let this yeast, this leaven, This sin, remain within the congregation, it has a leavening effect. It will have an effect on the entire body. You can't have this kind of impurity and not have it affect the whole body. It's like having a little bit of pain in your body. The whole body is affected by it. A little bit of sickness in your body. It's not just that part of you that's sick. It's the whole body that is sick. And if not cared for, it will run its course through the body. That's what Paul is saying. A little leaven leavens the entire lump. Let me give you a quote here from Charles Hodge, that Reformed theologian, from Princeton, and give you his um, uh, little take on this. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, Charles Hodge says. The proverbial expression here is not intended to express the idea that one corrupt member of the church depraves the whole because in the following verses in which the figure is carried out, the leaven is not a person but a sin. Therefore, it is the nature of evil to diffuse itself. This is what sin does, Hodge is saying. Sin does not stay contained, encapsulated. Sin spreads. It's like, it's like when you take that little bit of oil and drop it onto a puddle. Right? It doesn't beat up and stay there. It hits the water and the oil just, you know, the little rainbow, wiggly rainbows over the, whole, over the whole puddle. And Charles Hodge is saying this is what sin and evil does. He says it is the nature of sin to do this. This is true with regards to individuals and communities. And, that, and that's what I want us to pick up on. Here today, I want us to think about this in two ways. One, we're going to tend to think about this in terms of the congregation because that's what Paul's talking about here. But this is also true for you as an individual. Sin does not stay cordoned off or quarantined within the body. Sin affects the soul and poisons it. Like poison in a well, the water is all poison. It, uh, it diffuses throughout the entire body of water. It is the nature of evil to diffuse itself. This is true with regard to individuals and communities. I'm still reading. Hard. A single sin, however secret, when indulged, diffuses its corrupting influence over the whole soul. It depraves the conscience. It alienates from God. It strengthens all other principles of evil, while it destroys the efficacy of the means of grace and the disposition to use them. That is, it weakens our faith and weakens even our desire to repent. The longer you let it go, the effect that sin has on an individual soul and without a congregation is a deadening effect. So, we, again, let's think about it individually and let's think about it corporately. And, and, and what we're riffing off here and what we're playing on is the idea that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is why I believe Jesus, in that Matthew 18 passage that we read for our word of exhortation today, said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And we're going to see Paul's solution here. What do we do with this guy who, who, who is bringing toxicity the poison of sin, unrepentant sin, into the body. What do you do with it within your own life? It spreads itself like a cancer through the body. In ways even I think that you cannot imagine. It's not just obvious ways that sin ripples out and diffuses across your soul. Even that way that Charles Hodge points out is one you can't quite calculate. It has a deadening effect. That is, when we indulge in, because notice he said not only sin, but indulge it. That is, we take it, we receive it, we tolerate it, we put up with it, we don't kill it. It deadens the soul and makes it easier to do again. Makes repentance less likely because of the deadening effect upon the soul. That's why sin must be engaged. Look, none of us, none of us will be perfect in this life. None of us are going to fully eradicate sin in our lives. But the call of the Bible is to fight. The call of the Bible is to make war against the sin. The call of the, call of the Bible is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because we should fear the deadening effects, the longer we indulge it the easier it is to indulge it. The longer we indulge it, the harder it becomes to kill it because you don't want to kill it. This is the problem as far as Paul sees it. It must be dealt with because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Again, True at the personal level, but also on the congregational level. We This is why we have to care. It's very interesting. Paul says a little, he's talking to a church and he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do you think of your sin that way? Not as American evangelicals generally. We tend to think of our sin as private. Okay, sure, Bill, I get it. Maybe I do have to be concerned about this in my own life. A little bit of sin tolerated will deaden my soul, make me less ugly. That scares me. I do need to take the fight with sin more seriously. I, I, I receive your point. Okay, that is my point. My second point, though, is the body, this body, the church also needs you to do that because your sin also leavens this lump. This is something we do not consider within the evangelical church. The fact that we are not just a collection of autonomous individuals in this room. We are not like a bunch of marbles in a church bag. We are a lump of dough. We're a lump of dough. You're all each little bits of dough, but we are in a lump. Okay? We are, to use another biblical metaphor, a body. It's not just that I'm a body, I am a body, but we are a body. Therefore, your sin, indulged, leavens the entire lump. There's a corporate dimension. Paul is speaking here to a church and he's saying, brothers, you must deal with this because a little leaven permeates the entire lump. It tends to diffuse even on a simple level, let's just take a... Let's, let's, let, let me give you a simple way in which you can see, oh, yeah, I can see how that can happen. How your sin can affect the health of this body. Even private sin that none of us in here know about. How can you say, how can that affect the whole body? Let's just take a simple way. Perhaps because your conscience is feeling guilty over something that you did, or my conscience is feeling guilty. I don't want to just point the finger at you. My conscience is feeling guilty over something I've done. Maybe I'm I'm more hesitant to confront you on your sin because who am I to do that knowing the stuff I just did? And so I don't come and engage your sin. I don't feel comfortable doing that, knowing the things I'm doing. I'm going to feel hypocritical. That's just a simple way. And so you don't. And so you don't. Who am I to call out another brother when I know the stuff I'm doing? And all of a sudden, boom, the body gets less healthy because of that. The immune system is weakened. I was going to, it was funny, I was going to title the sermon the The Ecclesiastical White Blood Cells or the Ecclesial White Blood Cells, Church White Blood Cells, and I didn't. I said, because it's going to show up online, no one's going to know what the heck is going on. But that's what happens when the immune system gets weak, when all of a sudden we can't because we're dealing with sin, and now it weakens us. There's just a simple way, and who knows what other innumerable ways our sin, indulged, leavens, permeates the health of the entire body. But that's what Paul's saying. This is the problem. He can discern this all the way from his you know, where wherever he is. From way out here, I can see the problem, and this is it. So, brothers and sisters, may we feel that personally and corporately. We must care about the life of Christ's church. Here at affirmation, but again, even broader than affirmation. You are part of a grand body. We must care about this lump of dough. Now, what do we do about it? Well, Paul says it just like Jesus says it. You deal with it. In this text, and this sounds very harsh to our modern ears. We do not like the sound of this. This is is why, why I'm preaching in 1 Corinthians, because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for you. It's uncomfortable for whoever's listening. Because Paul says things that just, ooh, great on our modern sensitive ears. Paul says, here's what you have to do. You have to turn such a one over to Satan. Who talks like that. Turn such a one over to Satan. This is in verse five. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He's talking here about excommunication. You've got to, you have to cut them off from the body. Just like if if you know you've got that leaven in the dough, you've got to pull it out of there. You've got to cut off that section that has it. You've got the lack of health within the body. It must be dealt with. Jesus said it in Matthew 18. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Turn them over. Satan, he says, and boy, oh boy, do not even have fellowship with one. He, he comes back because he he's going to say here, listen, I'm not talking about non-believers. I'm not saying you shouldn't have anything to do with non-believers who are immoral. I'm talking about the immoral within the church. So jump over to verse nine. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He he says, look, I told you don't have anything to do with sexually immoral people, but I I clearly did not mean non-believers. We're to be salt and light to them. We're to be friends with them. We're to be engaging with them. We're to be calling them to repent and come. Of course, we're going to do all kinds of things with the sexually immoral, okay? He doesn't tell us, oh, this is about keeping our hands pure and clean because we don't get around sinners. No, get around sinners. Jesus ate and drank with them. Jesus hung out with them so much they called him a drunk. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and it was scandalous. Jesus was not trying to, oh, I can't be around sin. That, and, and we don't want to fall into that, that uh, nature, th- those accusations. And we go, okay, good. That's, you know, he wants us to be down there in, 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 with people in their, in their sinful situation so we can minister. Yes, but not with believers. <laughs> like, what? Who talks like this? But now I have written for you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Cut them off. But this grates on our modern sensitivities, but here is where I believe, this is why reading the Bible and sitting in church is so important, because we all come to the Christian faith, not just modern Americans, People throughout all ages come as who they are. We come with the own idolatrous, sinful sensitivities of our own culture, whatever that might be. And for us, we are a culture that demands the highest virtue of tolerance, acceptance, no judgment zones, safe spaces. And therefore, we, another culture, has to deal with their sins and they have their weaknesses of their culture and they need to come let the Bible speak to them and let the Bible criticize them and let the Bible cause them to repent. But we need that as well and we need to come as those for whom tolerance has become the highest virtue of our society and we need to, when when we read something in the Bible that feels grating to us or like nails on a chalkboard, like cut them off, have nothing to do with them, turn them over to Satan and we're just like, oh that can't be right. It's a sore spot. It's like, a, it's like a, little, a little, you know, pressure point, you know, when you feel the pain. And little red flags need to go up. Okay, why, why, why is this grating to me? Because I believe it's exposing a little idol in our culture that we have, we have begun to think. We have been conformed to the pattern of this world. And we're thinking like Corinthians, not like Christians. We're thinking like Americans, not like Christians. We need to let the Bible speak to us and challenge us and convict us and shape our ways of thinking. Paul has harsh words. You must cut them off for the health of the body. To one end. And we'll close with this. For what purpose? And there are several purposes here. On the one hand, Paul is concerned about the health of the entire church. A church that tolerates, and when I say tolerates, not in some judicial way, but a body that tolerates impurities, a body that tolerates infection, a church that tolerates grievous sin when it's known is a church that's bound to die just like a body that tolerates infection and does not fight it, is bound to die. A soul that tolerates sin and indulges it is a soul that is bound to die. And you've seen it. You and I have seen it in many churches that refuse to deal with sin within their congregation and it festers and it festers and it grows and it grows and soon the church is dead because we don't want to call something out. Paul cares about the health of the body and it must be dealt with as a congregation. But notice also another purpose. I I think that's very important to Paul about the health of the Corinthian church. But notice also the salvation of the soul. Why Why do we cut somebody off and turn them over to Satan? Very strong words, not to be ignored. But notice he says in verse five, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that is, give him or her over to their sin, let them go, cut them off, they are not considered a brother or a sister, and and let sin, Satan, world, have them. even even unto the destruction of the flesh. That is, because this is what sin does. Sin is not edifying. Sin is not healing. Sin destroys. It's corrosive. But then he adds to the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved on that day. That is to say, you've got to give them over then so that they might be broken so that by God's grace perhaps they may repent and come home. Think the story of the prodigal son who goes and just destroys his flesh. He ends up in a pigsty eating the slop from the the pig's feed. To what end? To come home to the father. To come home. The end of this, for Paul even, even in something that sounds as grating and harsh to us as cutting one off and giving them over to Satan, is to this end that by God's grace they will come back unto salvation. But to maintain them within the body and to tolerate, quote unquote, and to, and to tell them everything's okay or to turn a blind eye to it and not to love a person by telling them a hard thing leads to the destruction of their soul. Better to do the hard, awkward thing that may lead to the salvation of their soul than to the easy, tolerable thing, the thing that works so nice in line with the sensitivities of the American culture that leads to the destruction of their souls. That's very important for us to understand when it comes to church discipline, to personal discipline. It's pain that heals. It's it's, it's a cutting that heals. And a church that does not have it, just like a soul that does not have it, is destined for destruction. And finally, the last reason for why he says this, so first he says it for the purity of the church, and two, he says it for the salvation of the individual and ultimately the salvation of the church, because it hurts to cut off a member of your own body. I hear to the cutoff. You amputate something hereby. There's nothing pleasant about that. If we have to excommunicate someone in church, the body finds no delight in that. It happens usually with tears and gasps and horror. As it should. But it's for the health of the body. And the amputation imagery doesn't work for the restoration of the person. But leaving the metaphor behind now, ultimately we yearn for that. We weep, but we pray for that. So it's for the health, it's for the health of the church, for the salvation of the soul and of the church. But then finally, and he says this in verse 8, because this is what you are. And again, this, this comes back to what we've been, we've picked up a couple times in 1 Corinthians of Paul saying, And you will stand, and he will, and you will be saved, as if through fire, but you will be saved. Paul again speaks to such a distorted church with beautiful confidence. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Notice he says, you are unleavened. Therefore, be unleavened. Cut the leaven out because you are unleavened. You are righteous in Christ, therefore be righteous. You are pure in Christ, therefore be pure as individuals and as a congregation. Affirmation Church is already pure in Christ, so pursue purity. You as individuals, if we are in Christ, we are pure. Then what are we doing tolerating sin? Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed to deal with our sin. Why would we tolerate it? Why don't we despise it? The reason we should be on this hunt for sin and dealing with it in our own lives and then dealing with it in the congregation when it becomes obvious is because in Christ we are unleavened. We live out what is already true of us in Christ. We don't do it to earn an unleavening. You are unleavened bread. Why do you have leaven in you? That's the point. You are unleavened in Christ. Christ took all the leaven. It was all cut off if you will and put on him, and then he was cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah 53. So why are you indulging leaven? You are a new man in Christ. Why are you trying to do CPR on the old man? Why? Kick him to the curb and be the new man, the new woman that you are in Christ. For Christ, your Passover was sacrificed. So, though I don't imagine, and if you are sleeping with your dad's mom, then come see me afterwards and we'll, your dad's wife, and we will have, I will deal with that in particular. But, assuming for a second that we're not having that problem in this congregation, what problems, what, what sins are you indulging? It's killing your soul. And do you love this church, Christ church? Enough to kill your sin. Because your sin is killing, has the potential to deaden the church as well, as does mine. Do you love this church enough to call sin out and when there's an offense, rather than let it fester, speak to a brother or sister one-on-one as Jesus said in Matthew 18? Or is it our inclination to talk to everybody except the person who offended us? Do you love the church in Christ enough to see it through? And when you believe a real sin is taking place and a real offense and it's not being heard by a brother or sister to grab others and confront because we're going we're to wrestle this to the ground. Do you love the church enough to have the nerve? Should it come to that? To say to a brother or sister, I can no longer call you a brother or a sister. Do you love the church enough to submit to that kind of discipline? Those of you who are members of this church have taken vows to that end. You have, you, when you became a part of this church, you said, I'm not an autonomous individual anymore. I take a vow to submit to the governance and discipline of the church. It's a good, good time in a sermon like this to reflect upon that and say, do I want that? Do I want want brothers and sisters who love me and who love Christ enough to call my sin out? Should it come to that? Should they see it? Should it become so apparent that it's bubbling out beyond the, the walls of privacy that they need to call it out? Would I heed them? Pray about that. We need to pray about it individually and we need to pray about it as a church so that our souls may be healthy, so that we might be what Christ has made us to be namely unleavened bread, righteous and holy and pure, not in and of ourselves, but because of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we tolerate leaven. And yet we acknowledge here the deadening effect that that leaven has upon us and upon the health of the church. We confess that we are individualistic. We don't tend to think that our sin could affect, even our private sins could affect the health of the church but you tell us it is so right here in 1 Corinthians 5. So we pray, Lord, that you would make us those who do not indulge sin. We acknowledge that we will wrestle this and battle this until the end of our days, until you call us home and you, by your Spirit, glorify and perfect us. But until then, keep us fighting. Guard our hearts from building up thick callous that makes them insensitive to our sins. May we gaze upon your holiness and in so doing feel the sting of sin that we might repent of it, cut it out, cleanse it, for we are clean in Christ. I pray for this for us as individuals and for us as a church. Guard us, we pray, from the deadening effects of sin. For We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.